Tonight we're going to study John chapter 18, verse 1, to John chapter 19, verse 6. Jesus Christ on trial, or the six trials of Jesus Christ. Now I think that the importance of this um, study and of this passage and of this subject, the Passion of Christ, can easily be seen. Over one-third of the Gospels are devoted to the suffering of Christ. The Gospel of Luke has 24 chapters. Out of 24 chapters, eight chapters deal with the suffering of Christ. John has 21 chapters. Out of 21 chapters, beginning with chapter 13 and running all the way through John chapter 21, we deal with the suffering and the victory of Christ. Over one-third of the Gospels are concerned with the suffering of Christ. Furthermore, the heart of the gospel is found in the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then furthermore, that is the reason, after all, why Christ came. Jesus came to suffer. James Denny, the great Church of Scotland scholar, said one time, Jesus Christ did not come to preach the gospel. He came to be the gospel. That's why the epistles explain the gospel. Whereas the gospel tells us of the events of Christ's life and primarily the events surround his death and resurrection. And of course, the death and resurrection of Jesus has changed the whole course of human history. We date our calendar, don't we, from the coming of Christ. The calendar we have is not the calendar of the days of Jesus. The calendar that we have was not constructed until around... Uh, Oh, 555, 75 A.D., when the Pope at that time authorized a certain Roman monk who was an, also an astronomer to construct a new chronology. The old chronology was constructed from the founding of the city of Rome so that Jesus Christ was born 754 A.U.C., Auburbe Candida, from the founding of the city of Rome. Well, this monk felt that all events ought to be dated not from the alleged date of the founding of the city of Rome, but from the coming of Christ in this world. And so he gave us a new calendar. He made a mistake about four years. Not a mistake in the Bible, but a mistake in the computation of Dionysius Exiguus, for that was his name. But although he made a mistake so that we have to say today that Jesus Christ was born five years B.C., five years before Christ, although he made a mistake, the idea that prompted him to do this was a beautiful idea. For after all, all human history before that time flowed into the cross of Christ. And all human history since that time has flowed out of the cross of Christ. And the cross of Jesus Christ is the most significant event in human history. Sir John Bowling wrote a hymn that some of us sing. In the cross of Christ I glory, towering o'er the wreckage of time. Now, unfortunately, Bowling was an Unitarian. But although he was a Unitarian, he captured the true thought. In the cross of Christ I glory, towering o'er the wreckage of time. Now, our study this year has been in the Gospel of John. And so far, in the past two years, we've studied 
through John chapter 17. And last Monday night, we, or you at least, completed that study. Mr. Davidson is here. We finished the study of John 17, verses 20 to 26. Now we're ready for John 18. What I've done is to take John 18, 19, 20, and 21, four chapters, and draw out of them four great central events. The trials of Christ, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, and the commissioning of the disciples by Christ. John 18, part of 19, the trials of Christ. John 19, 17 to 42, the death of Christ. John 20, the resurrection and appearances of Christ. John chapter 21, the epilogue to the gospel, the commissioning of the disciples by Jesus Christ. Now let's take a minute and get the setting of the trials of Christ. Jesus Christ came into Bethany probably about Friday afternoon before sunset, the preceding Friday afternoon before his death. He came from Jericho. He got into Bethany the preceding Friday afternoon before sunset. The Sabbath began on Friday at sunset, around 6. Went all the way until Saturday around sunset, around 6 o'clock. So they didn't do anything in the gospel of silence. Then on Saturday night, after the Sabbath was over, they had that wonderful dinner in honor of Jesus in the home of Martha and Mary Lazarus. We read about it in John chapter 12. Then on Sunday, the Lord Jesus went into the city of Jerusalem. Bethany was about, uh, what, about three, four miles southeast of the city of Jerusalem. So on Sunday, they went around the corner of the Mount of Olives and into the city of Jerusalem. And there took place what is called the triumphal entry, which we celebrate on Palm Sunday. Then he went back to Bethany. On Monday morning, once again, Jesus went into the city of Jerusalem. Monday evening, he came back to Bethany. On Tuesday, he went once again into the city of Jerusalem. And uh, Tuesday was a day that was filled with many things, not least of which was the conflicts that he had with the Pharisees and Sadducees. And then later on, Tuesday evening, he crossed over and gave that great discourse that we call the Olivet Discourse in Matthew chapter 24 and 25. Then he went on back to Bethany. Wednesday is often called the day of silence. On Thursday morning, he sent two disciples into the city of Jerusalem to make ready the Passover so he could eat the Last Supper with his disciples. So on Thursday afternoon, the Lord Jesus with the rest of the disciples went into the city of Jerusalem. And there he went to an upper room and there he washed the disciples' feet as we have been studying the last several weeks. He washed the disciples' feet. He dismissed the traitor. And then he gave that wonderful upper room discourse that we find John 14, 15, 16. About 11, 11.30 at night, the Lord Jesus and his disciples left that upper room in Jerusalem <clears throat> made their way eastward, and perhaps near the temple, the Lord prayed that prayer that's found in John 17, the great high 
priestly prayer of Christ. John chapter 17. Then, after that, he crossed the brook Kedron. That's found in John chapter 18, verse 1. And I ask you to turn your, God, your Bibles open to John 18, 1. And we read in John chapter 18, verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the brook Kedron on the east side of Jerusalem, where was a garden into the which he entered and his disciples. So they crossed over. They left Jerusalem by the temple. They went down into the valley Kedron. They went up on the west side of the Mount of Olives, and there on the west side of the Mount of Olives was the Garden of Gethsemane. And they went into the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, John does not tell us about the agony of Jesus in the garden. You remember that, don't you? You remember he left his disciples and took three of them, Peter, James, and John, one away from the other. Then he left Peter, James, and John, went by himself, prayed three times. Every time he came back, what were the three doing? Sleeping. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the Synoptic Gospels, tell us that, but not John. He doesn't tell us that. John does tell us about the high priestly prayer in John 17. The Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, do not tell us about that. So between verse 1 and verse 2 of John 18 goes that agony in the garden. Now, you don't see it in your Bible, do you? Well, the printers put it in invisible ink, but it's there, see? It goes right between verse 1 and verse 2. John chapter 18, the agony in the garden. And then he tells us, John does, about the betrayal of Jesus by Judas and his arrest. That's given to us in verses 2 to 11. Let's read it quickly. Judas also, which betrayed him, knew the place. They'd probably gone to Gethsemane many times to pray there. Judas knew it. For Jesus many times resorted thither there with his disciples. So they brought the, received a band of men or a cohort composed usually of 600 men, probably not more than 200 men at the present time, Roman soldiers, and temple officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, and the captain of the guard. And they came with lanterns and torches and weapons, and Jesus there, knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth and said unto them, went out of the olive tree, came out in the open and said, Whom seek ye? They answered Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said, I am he. You notice the word he is in italics, isn't it? You're looking at your Bible. Is it in italics? That means it's not there. All he said was, I am. That great affirmation of God's nature in the Old Testament. I am. Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with him. And as soon as, they had, as he had said unto them, I am, they went backward and fell to the ground. Then he asked them again, whom seek ye? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. He said, I am. Therefore, you seek me. Let these disciples of mine go away free. Don't take them. That the saying might be fulfilled, which he spake, of them which thou gavest me, have I lost none. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and smote the high priest's servant. He probably made a cut for his neck, but the guy dodged and he only got his ear. See, and he cut off his right ear. The servant's thing was Malchus. Now, you know the commentaries have a field day and taken out after Peter, but I kind of like it. See, it was wrong, but I kind of like what he did, you see. He was 
I admit it was carnal. He shouldn't have done it. But uh, it was natural, you know, and he cut off the right ear of Malchus, and the servant's name was Malchus. Jesus said to Peter, put up your sword into the sheath. The cup which my father has given me, shall I not drink it? Now the gospels tell us that he took that ear, put it back on the man, healed him instantaneously. Then the band, that is the cohort, the Roman cohort, and the captain, that's the captain of the officers of the Jews, and the officers of the Jews, that is the temple officers, took Jesus and bound him and led him away to Annas first. For he was father-in-law to Caiaphas, who was the high priest that same year. Now, here begins the trials of Jesus Christ. The trials of Christ took place, I suppose, between 2 o'clock in the morning and 9 o'clock in the morning. We know from Mark's gospel that the Lord Jesus was led outside the city of Jerusalem and crucified about 9 a.m. in the morning. And uh, we know that after he uttered that fifth word from the fourth word from the cross, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Then the sun came back. And the sun was darkened from about three hours from 12 to 3. And the last three sayings of Jesus were said very quickly so that he was probably dead by 4 p.m. Friday. Now he was taken out about 9 a.m. Friday morning. Mark chapter 15 tells us that. And uh, there were three civil trials, and there were three ecclesiastical trials that preceded that. And the first one was the preliminary examination before Anna. And this probably began about 2 or 2.30 in the morning, and all six trials were over by 9 o'clock in the morning. They moved quickly. So they took him back into the city, and he had, and, and back in the city, the Lord Jesus stood on trial for about six hours. Now, there were six trials of Christ. There were three ecclesiastical trials, and there were three civil trials. There were first three ecclesiastical trials, and that's all that outline, so you can look up here, see. There are three ecclesiastical trials. The first one was a preliminary examination before Anna. It wasn't really a trial. It was a preliminary examination before Annas. It gave them time to get out into the city and get a quorum of the Sanhedrin in one place so they could take action. And so it was probably lasted 30 to 40 minutes, simply a preliminary examination. And that took place about 2.30, maybe 3 o'clock in the morning. Secondly, there was the informal trial before the Sanhedrin. I say informal because it was not legal to hold a trial by the Sanhedrin at nighttime. So this was an informal trial, but it was the real trial. And the charge that they eventually, of which they eventually found him guilty, was the charge of blasphemy. And they had quite a trial, that second trial, the second ecclesiastical trial before the Sanhedrin. Then to validate that informal, illegal trial, the Sanhedrin, right at the break of day, right while the sun was rising, 
maybe 5.15, 5.30 in the morning. The Sanhedrin met and quickly reviewed that case, get the case against Jesus, and reaffirmed the charge and the verdict and the sentence, and then quickly took him to Pilate, which is not far away, the castle of Antonia. And then before Pilate, before the civil rulers, there were three trials. First of all, he stood before Pilate, and Pilate questioned him. And Pilate said, I find this man innocent. I find nothing wrong with this man. He's innocent. But he knew he couldn't get off that easy, did Pilate. He knew that to appease the Jews, he was going to have to do something to this man. And he was in a quandary. And while the Jews were debating with him, one of them happened to wrench him that this man, beginning from Galilee, has opposed him. And when the word Galilee came out, a bell rang in the mind of Pilate. Why, he said, that's outside my territory. That's in the territory of Herod Antipas. And Herod is in Jerusalem right now. So I'll send this hot potato, this case, I'll send this case, too hot to handle, I'll send it over to Herod and make him solve it. So he sent Jesus over to Herod. But Herod wasn't serious. Herod had no moral scruples. We know that. He put John the Baptist to death. And Jesus called him that fox in the Greek word is vixen, that female fox. He was effeminate. And he wasn't serious. And he toyed with Jesus. Then he sent him on back to Pilate. Then Jesus stood before Pilate, the third civil trial. And Pilate tried, as we shall see, several compromises to evade the action that he finally took, but none was successful. And he finally delivered them over to the Jews and to the soldiers to be crucified. Six trials, three civil, three religious, three ecclesiastical, and three civil. The charge on the ecclesiastical trial was blasphemy. But that wouldn't stand up in a civil court, just as it wouldn't stand up in a civil court in the United States. That wouldn't stand up in court. So they had to switch the charge. When they went to Pilate, they switched the charge, and they charged him with, well, essentially, sedition. He says, don't pay taxes. He calls himself a king. By doing these things, he stirs up the Jews in the land of Palestine. That's the charge they brought against Jesus to Pilate. Now, having looked at that, let's look quickly at these six trials. The first one, three ecclesiastical trials, first before Annas, secondly before the Sanhedrin, and third before the Sanhedrin once again. The first trial is the trial, a preliminary examination before Annas. Look at John chapter 18. Verse 12, then the band and the captain and officer of the Jews took Jesus and bound him and led him away to Annas first, John 18, 13. Led him away to Annas first. For Annas was the father-in-law to Caiaphas, who was the high priest that same year. Now Caiaphas was he which gave counsel to the Jews that is expedient that one should die for the people. Now the next verses tell us about what happened to Peter. We skip down to verse 19. The high priest, that is Annas, Annas the high priest, then asked Jesus of his disciples and of his doctrine, 
Here's this preliminary examination by Annas. Jesus answered Annas. I spoke openly to the world. I ever taught in the son of the synagogue. The temple with the Jews always resort. In secret have I said nothing. Why, why do you ask me? Ask them which heard me what I have said unto them. Behold, they know what I said. And when he had thus spoken, one of the officers stood by, struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, saying, Answerest thou the high priest so? Jesus answered him, If I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil, but if well, why smitest thou me? Now, Annas sent him, not had sent him. The word had is not in the Greek text. It's the error. Annas now sent him, bound unto Caiaphas, the high priest. So the first trial is a preliminary examination before Annas. And uh, <clears throat> we, we ask ourselves, who is this Annas? Well, Annas is, um, uh, Annas is about 70 years of age now. He was the real power behind the Sanhedrin. Annas had been the high priest from about 6 to 15 A.D. By this time, the high priesthood was bought and sold. You know, in the Old Testament, it was passed down from father to eldest son to eldest son. But by this time, since the days, well, later than the Maccabean, the Hasmonean period, the high priesthood was sold to the highest bidder. Because if man could occupy the high priesthood for two or three years, he could be a millionaire. Annas had been the high priest from 6 to 15 A.D. Now listen. You want to hear a case of what is it? Simony? Annas, uh, that was another man got in for about a year. But after that, Annas got five of his sons and one son-in-law into the high priesthood. And they virtually controlled the high priesthood for about 60 years. And he first got a son in, and then I think a second son, and then he got Caiaphas into the high priesthood. And Caiaphas was high priest, if my memory serves me right, from about the middle of the 20s to the middle of the 30s. Caiaphas, the high priest. But Anna still maintained the title of high priesthood. Just as we often call a president after he's out of the office, we still call him Mr. President, don't we? So Anna still held the title of high priest. So when we read in verse 19, the high priest then asked, that's Annas, not Caiaphas, that's Annas. And when we read it down in verse 24, now Annas, the high priest, sent him bound into Caiaphas, who was the acting high priest. Caiaphas was the real high priest. That is the acting high priest. But Annas was the real power behind the throne. What was the power of the high priest? Well, both political and economic. Uh, political was that the high priest was the president of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was composed of 72 members. And the high priest was the president. He was the most powerful member. He was somewhat like Tip O'Neill in the house. See? Only much more powerful with no reflection on Tip O'Neill. He was much more powerful. So it was a political position, but it was also an economic position. Annas controlled, the high priest controlled, what they called the, what they called the bazaars of Annas. 
when a man and, you know, thousands, hundreds of thousands of Jews came down to Palestine at Passover season. When they came down to Palestine, they would offer an animal to sacrifice, wouldn't they? Rich man would offer a bullock, perhaps. A less wealthy man would offer a sheep. Poor man would offer a pair of turtle doves. Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us that at Passover time in Jerusalem, a pair of turtle doves, two turtle doves, that normally sold for eight cents, sold for $3.95. You know why? Well, the man wanted to sacrifice, and that's the only reason he made the long trip from Corinth or Athens or Ephesus, was to sacrifice once in his lifetime to make the sacrifice in Jerusalem. And he couldn't put a bullock or a lamb or even a pair of turtle doves under his arm and travel all the distance. He had to buy them there. And Annas controlled the bazaars, the markets, and charged the prices. And then you wanted to offer some money in the temple. But you couldn't offer the regular money. That's no good. See, now, I've never been in a church that refused to take regular money. <laughs> but they wouldn't take regular money down the temple. You had to get it changed into the temple money. And when you got it changed into the temple money, they charged you an exorbitant price. Now, who do you think controlled the changing of the money? Annas and the high priest. They control it. And a man can become a millionaire in a short time. That's one reason they put Jesus to death. He was an economic threat. Just like the modern-day liquor and gambling crowd don't like the gospel and don't like Jesus. It cuts at their economic trade. So he was an economic threat to Annas, the high priest, the Sanhedrin. And that's one reason they put him to death. And that's stated in John chapter 11. And this is the man that questioned. And they brought him first to Annas. Notice in verse 13, what does it say? They led him away to Annas. What is that word? Yeah, why? Because they knew who controlled the string. Annas, the father-in-law of Caiaphas. So that was the first one. It was a preliminary examination. And Annas examined Jesus 30 to 40 minutes first to find out something by which he could charge him. Secondly, secondly, he asked about his disciples. He wanted to find out how widespread was this thing. And third, it gave him time to get out to the city, wake up the members of the Sanhedrin, and get them into the Sanhedrin hall or to the home of Annas and Caiaphas for the real second trial. So in verse 24, John 18, verse 24, when Annas had finished that, verse 24, Annas sent him bound unto Caiaphas, the high priest. So that's the first trial, preliminary examination under Annas. Now we go to the second one, which is an informal night trial before the Sanhedrin. Now, this trial is found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It is not found in the Gospel of John. So we're going to have to turn over to Matthew chapter 26. Here's the second trial, the informal night trial before the Sanhedrin. Now, I call it informal because I don't want to call it illegal. 
so I call it informal. But it was the real trial. It was the trial at which the real business was transacted. It may have lasted for an hour, an hour and a half, the informal night trial before the Sanhedrin. Matthew 26, verse 57. Now, you see, Matthew doesn't tell us about that preliminary examination before Annas. He skips over that. But he begins with that second trial before Caiaphas. Verse 57. They that laid hold of Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were ascended. See, that makes up the Sanhedrin. The scribes and the elders and the high priest. That made up the Sanhedrin, primarily controlled by the Sadducees and the high priest, the president. They led him away where the scribes and the elders, that's the Sanhedrin, was assembled. But Peter followed him afar off, went in with the servants to see the end. Now the chief priests and the elders and all the council, do you have council in your Bible? That word is Sanhedrin. That's the Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin. And all the council, all the Sanhedrin, sought false witnesses against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. Yea, though many false witnesses came, yet they found none. At last they got two false witnesses and said, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it three days. And the high priest arose and said, Answerest thou nothing? What is this which these witness against thee? Jesus held his peace. The other gospel tells us, that they couldn't get two witnesses who would agree. The witnesses contradicted one another. The Sanhedrin dropped the ball. The Sanhedrin dropped the ball. They didn't get their witnesses ahead of time and get their stories straightened out. So when they got them up there, they contradicted one another. Here is the informal night trial before the Sanhedrin. It takes place either, either in the home of Annas or at the Sanhedrin hall. And as I mentioned, the Sanhedrin was the supreme court in Palestine. It had all ecclesiastical authority, and it had uh, a good deal of political authority. You know, the Roman government gave to its uh, provinces a uh, good deal of local autonomous um, authority. They gave them as much as they would take without revolting. Now, Palestine, the tide of nationalism ran strong in Palestine all the time. If you think the IRA and the Irish pub is a problem to the English, you should see what Palestine was at times to the Romans. The tide of nationalism rose high. But they gave to the Sanhedrin uh, a good deal of local autonomous authority. Matter of fact, they gave the Sanhedrin the right to take extradition papers and go way up to Damascus, gave that to Paul to go way up to Damascus, outside of Palestine, bring back any Orthodox Jews who had converted to Christianity, whose original homes had been on in Jerusalem. So they had a lot of authority. But there was one thing they couldn't do. They could try a man for a capital offense, but they couldn't execute him. They could try a man for a capital offense, but they could not execute him. And that's why they had to bring Jesus to Pilate. You say, well, what about Stephen? Acts 6. Well, that was a lynching. That wasn't a trial there. They just lynched Stephen there. And by that time, Pilate's authority was so weak in Palestine 
but he couldn't do anything about it. And they lynched Stephen, got away with it. But normally, they had to bring, if they wanted to execute a man, they had to bring him to the Roman procurator. Now, the problem the Sanhedrin faced was this. They must find a crime and sustain it that's worthy of death according to the Jewish law. But at the same time, they're going to find, have to find a charge of some sort of capital offense that will stand up in a Roman civil court. Now, can I go over that once again? That, I think, went over you, maybe. This is the problem. They're going to have to find a charge that's worthy of death according to the Jewish law, but at the same time find a charge against Jesus which will stand up in a Roman court and render him guilty of capital punishment. They're going to have to find it. That's what their aim is going to be, to find a double charge that will stand up, one in the ecclesiastical court, one in the civil court. So the Sanhedrin here takes two steps. Two steps. First of all, they attempt to convict Jesus by false witnesses. We already read of that. They tried to get witnesses to witness against Jesus. We read about that. But the witnesses didn't agree, and even if they did agree, that crime wasn't a capital offense. More than that, they didn't allow Jesus to call any witnesses for himself. That totally failed. So the high priest, Caiaphas, hit upon something very ingenious. He abjured him, put him under oath, to answer a question. Now, that was wrong, but he did it anyway. And he said, look at verse 62. The high priest arose and said unto him, Answerest thou nothing? What is this which these witness against thee? But Jesus held his peace. So the high priest answered and said unto him, I adjure thee, I put thee on oath by the living God, that thou tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. I put you on oath to tell us, yes or no, I am the Christ and I am the Son of God. Now, up to this time, Jesus had been silent, but he could be silent no longer. Now, you know why. If he's silent, no, if he's now silent, if he's now silent, that would be a, a, a confession that he's not the Messiah, and that he's not the Son of God. The high priest has put him on oath. Tell us, are you the promised Messiah? Are you the Son of God? If Jesus Christ had now remained silent, that would, in effect, have denied, he would, in effect, deny that he was the Christ, and, in effect, denied that he was the Son of God. So Jesus could no longer remain silent at this point. So in one of the greatest affirmations that ever fell from the lips of Jesus, the Lord Jesus said, look at verse 64, Jesus saith unto him, Thou hast said. Now what he means, that, Amer that, you know, that King James comes off very soft. When he says, Thou hast said, what he's saying, you said it rightly, absolutely. I am the Messiah. I am the Christ, the promised Messiah. I am the Son of God. And you know, when they asked him, are you the Son of God? 
the term son of God is used in different ways in, 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 the, in the Bible. Perhaps four, maybe five different ways. You and I are called sons of God by faith in Christ. The angels are called sons of God. But there is a, uh, um, an ontological, if I may use that term, an ontological use of the son of God. And it's used, for example, in John chapter 5. And there it means when Jesus is called the Son of God in John chapter 5, it simply means that Jesus Christ possesses the attributes of God. When in John chapter 5, Jesus said, My Father worked hitherto, and I also am working. My Father's been working since the days of creation, working in providence, and I also I also have been working with my father all that time. The next verse says that they say to him, now, now they say we're going to kill him. John chapter 5. Now, now he's worthy of death. Why? Because not only has he broken the Sabbath and healed a man, but he called God his father, comma, making himself equal with God. And when Jesus said, I am the Son of God, and when the high priest said, are you the Son of God, he used it in that sense, claiming to be divine, claiming to be God. And Jesus said, first, thou hast said, absolutely, you're right. I am the Messiah. I am the Son of God. But he didn't stop there. He didn't stop there, see. He gave him an extra dose here. He said to them, nevertheless, I say unto you, Hereafter, you shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Now, that person, the Son of Man, sitting on the right hand of the Father and coming in the clouds of heaven is given to us in Daniel chapter 7. May I say to you, and I hope you'll all listen carefully, don't, you know, I used to, interpret the Son of Man this way. I'd say, well, because he's related to God, he's the Son of God. Because he's related to man, he's the Son of Man. When the Bible uses the term Son of Man, that means that he's one like us. That isn't what the word Son of Man means at all. You know, when we call somebody, give them a nickname, we give them a nickname by something that's unusual about it. If a person is slim, uh, real thin and tall, we call him what? Slim. And if he's uh, uh, real large, we call him chubby. And uh, I had a friend who was totally bald at 13. They called him curly. See? <laughs> but, you know, we, if a person is red-headed, you know what they call him by? Red. They called somebody by that thing which is distinctive. Now, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What is distinctive about the Lord Jesus? What is distinctive is that he became a man. So the term, his favorite term for himself, the term that Jesus used for himself more than any other term was not Jesus, was not Christ, was the Son of Man. Son of Man. Son of Man. He loved that title. But when he used that term, Son of Man, he was referring to his place, distinctive place in the Trinity, the second member of the Trinity. 
And he said, not only do I lay claim to be the Messiah, the Son of God, but I also lay claim to be the fulfillment of that prophecy in Daniel chapter 7. When Daniel says, the Son of Man sits on the right hand of the Father in heaven, will come in the clouds of glory of that prophecy. And by so doing, he made two great divine claims. He claimed to be the Messiah, the Son of God, and he claimed to be the fulfillment of that prophecy. Now notice what the high priest does, verse 65. Then the high priest rent his clothes. When a high priest rent tore his clothes, you know, you know he had to be wealthy then, don't you? <laughs> because, you know, every time he reached, every time, the way the high priest indicated that he reached a verdict was to rent his clothes. Every time a high priest reached his, and all the other members of the Sanhedrin knew that the president of the Sanhedrin had reached a decision. And they knew it because he would rent his clothes. So the high priest here ripped his clothes. He rent his clothes, indicating, I've reached my decision. I've reached a verdict. So the high priest rent his clothes then. He has spoken blasphemy. What further need have we of any witnesses? But no, you, you've heard his, you've heard right out of his own mouth his blasphemy. What think you? The answer said, he is guilty of death. And they spat in his face and buffeted. Now, blasphemy in the Old Testament is not uh, cussing. Blasphemy in the Old Testament is not cussing. Blasphemy can be speaking against God. But in the Old Testament, most often blasphemy is laying claim to divine prerogative. If I'm just a human person, and yet I claim to be God, I claim to be, if I, under a touch of a great deal of insanity, claim to be the promised my, uh, Messiah, as our, you know, our friend does today, or this man does today from Korea, what's his name? You know, Reverend Moon? All right, that's the claim he made, see. That's blasphemy, according to the... And Father Divine, who claimed to be God. That's blasphemy. Blasphemy was laying claim to divine dignity and to divine prerogative and to divine nature. And Jesus said, I'm the Son of God. Jesus said, I'm the Son of Man, second member of the Trinity. Jesus said, I'm the promised Messiah. Now, if that were just a man, according to Jewish law, that would be blasphemy. So when they heard Jesus make that, and they didn't believe Jesus, when they heard Jesus make those claims, they said he's guilty of blasphemy. And the book of Deuteronomy is clear on this. A man that's guilty of this kind of blasphemy ought to be taken outside the city and stoned to death. He's worthy, worthy, worthy of death to be taken outside. They did that in the nation of Israel. That's one reason why I don't believe the church is spiritual Israel. Were in the same conditions and covenants, laws would reside upon us. We don't take people outside the city of Memphis and stone them to death. But they were obligated to do so for the crime of blasphemy 
under the Old Testament dispensation. Didn't do it. So they said we find him guilty of death. Now, that was a night trial. And a night trial was illegal. So they're going to have to have a third trial, daybreak, to validate that second. So let's go to the third trial. The third trial. The formal trial before the Sanhedrin. The verdict is clear. The charge is blasphemy. The verdict guilty. The sentence is death. Now we go to the third trial. And that's found only in Luke, Luke chapter 22. So let's take our Bibles and turn over quickly to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22, verse 67 to 71. Luke 22, verse 67. Verse 66. Luke 22, verse 66. And as soon as it was, what? Day, at daybreak, to make it legal. Soon as the day, the elders of the people, chief priests, scribes came together, led him into their Sanhedrin, saying, all right, they go through it again, very quickly. Couldn't have taken more than 12 or 15 minutes at the most. Art thou the Christ? Tell us. He said unto them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I also ask you, you will not answer me, nor let me go. He'd already gone through this once. Hereafter shall the Son of Man sit on the right hand of the power of God. Then they said, Art thou then the Son of God? And he said to them, You say that I am. He meant by that, You're saying it exactly right. Yes, indeed, I am. They said, What need we any further witnesses? For we ourselves have heard out of his own mouth. Here was the formal trial before the Sanhedrin right after daybreak, probably about 5.15 or 5.30 in the morning. And the purpose of this was to validate. The Mishnah tells us the criminal case can only be tried in the daytime, and the verdict of guilty must have one day the verdict of guilty and, and the sentencing of the man must have one day lapse between those two. Well, they overlooked number D, but they didn't overlook number A. So they held this third trial to question Jesus once again. It must have only taken 15 minutes. The charge, what was it? Blasphemy. The verdict, what was it? Guilty. And the sentence, death. The charge, blasphemy. The verdict, guilty. The sentence, death. Now, the problem the Sanhedrin faces is that although they could try a man for a capital offense, they could not execute that man. For that, they must defer to the Roman procurator, the Roman governor. So the Roman governor, Pilate's in town. So they're going to have to take him to Pilate. But they're going to have to find a charge that will stand up in a civil court. Blasphemy won't stand up in a civil court. So they're going to have to find a charge that stands up in the civil court, and they find that charge, and essentially it's sedition. Now there are going to be three civil trials. How many ecclesiastical trials were there? Three. First one before Annas, the second informal before the Sanhedrin, and the third before the Sanhedrin. Now there are going to be three civil trials. First Pilate, second Herod, third Pilate. All right, the first one's before Pilate, Luke chapter 23, also in John chapter 18. 
Early in the morning, Luke chapter 23, verse 1. Luke 23, verse 1. And the whole multitude of them arose and led him unto Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We heard blasphemy from this man's lips. He is guilty of blasphemy. Now, is that what it says? No, it doesn't, does it? What I'm seeing, I'm seeing if you're following or if you're over in the book of Hezekiah. All right. Now, let's look at verse 2. They switched the charges, see? The charge they found him guilty of in the ecclesiastical court was blasphemy. They switched the charge here. They began to accuse him, saying, We found this fellow, number one, perverting the nation, number two, forbidding to give tribute to Caesar, number three, saying that he himself is Christ, a king. He claims to be a king. He encourages people not to pay their taxes to Rome. By doing so, he perverts the nation. So Pilate asked him, saying, Art thou the king of the Jews? And he answered him, saying, Well, thou sayest it. Then said Pilate the chief priest, and he examined him, and that examination is found much more extensively in John. And we don't have time to go to John and read it. You've got it in the study there. You'll have to study it. But you find it much more extensively. He, he questions Jesus. And when he gets through questioning Jesus, after they lodge this thing, he takes Jesus all by himself and questions him. He comes out again and says to the crowd that assembled, this man's innocent. First of all, he listens. What's the charge? They said, we charge him with, he perverts the nation, he encourages, don't pay taxes, calls himself a king. That's our charge. That's the charge against him that we lodge with you. So he dialogues, does Pilate with them for a few minutes. Then he says to Jesus, come back. And they go back into a private hall. And Pilate interrogates Jesus. The, uh, the Romans are always watching for rebellion. This is the thing that broke out all the time in Palestine. They watched for this thing. So asked Jesus, Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. I'm not going to come here now and establish it by destroying the Romans. Not now. My kingdom is not of this world. You have nothing to fear from me in that way, in that way. So Pilate took Jesus out and said to the crowd, I find no fault in this man. He didn't mean I find him sinless. He meant, I find no crime worthy of death. This man is an innocent man. But that wasn't enough. That wasn't enough for the Sanhedrin. They didn't want to leave it there. So, verse 4, verse 4, Then said Pilate, the chief priests of the people, I find no fault in this man. And they were the more fierce, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Jewry, Beginning from where? Galilee. Oh, that rang a bell. That rang a bell in Pilate's head. Galilee. Galilee. That's outside my jurisdiction. That belongs to Herod Antipas. That's way up north. Herod Antipas has Galilee over yonder and Perea, which we today call Transjordan. That belongs to Herod Antipas. And if he belongs to Galilee, then this falls within Herod's jurisdiction. And how fortunate that Herod's in town right now. See? So Pilate said, I'll send him to Herod. 
So we look at verse 6. When Pilate heard of Galilee, he asked whether the man were Galilean. As soon as he knew that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who himself was also at Jerusalem at that time. Well, the rest of those six, seven verses tell about the trial, the second trial. And I move on quickly, and you can read it. The second trial, the trial before Herod. But it's nothing serious. Herod says to Jesus, I've heard about you for a long time. I want you to show me some of your juggling acts. I want to show you some of your, you, I want you to show me some of your miracles. I want to be, in, I want to be entertained. I want to be entertained. All Herod was looking for is a kind of a supernatural television program. I want to be entertained. Jesus said, no, I'm not going to do that. He was silent for Herod. So Herod got his officers to beat him. You know, they always ended that way. They always beat a man. So they got his soldiers to beat him and to mock him. And then in verse, in the next verse, look at it, verse 11. And Herod with his men wore sediment not, mocked him, Rate him in a gorgeous robe, and at the end of verse 11, send him back again to who? Pilate. No, said Herod, I'm not going to get you off the dilemma. You're going to have to solve it. And the same day, Pilate and Herod made friends together before they were enmity between themselves. Now we come to the last trial, the third civil trial, the final trial, the trial before Pilate. Takes place... Uh, well, I would say about 7.30 in the morning, between 7, 7.30 in the morning. And once again, Pilate announces the innocence of Jesus. Look at verses 13 to 15. Pilate, when he had called together the chief priests and the rulers of Sanhedrin, said to them, you brought this man as one that perverts the people. I've examined him. I found no fault in this man, verse 15, nor has Herod. We both found this man innocent. But Herod knew, but Pilate knew that wasn't going to satisfy the Jews. So, Pilate, after announcing the innocence of Jesus, but fearing the Jews and knowing they wouldn't be satisfied with that, Pilate tries four compromises. Pilate attempts to compromise and evade his responsibility. His aim is to satisfy the Jews at the same time, let Jesus go free. Now, why do you think he wants to satisfy the Jews? Because if he doesn't, that'll get back to the Roman emperor. Why does he want to let Jesus go free? Because he doesn't want it to be recorded and the records go back to Rome that he has been guilty of putting an innocent man to death. So what he wants to do is to beat this man Jesus, to chastise him, to beat him, to injure him, which will satisfy the crowds and yet let him go free, which won't serve as a black mark on the books before the Roman governor. And Pilate's afraid. See, Pilate's already had several run-ins. He's had at least five run-ins with the Jews already. And uh, the Sanhedrin hated Pilate, and Pilate hated them. There's no love lost between these two. And they were at one another's juggler vein in this contest. Now, Pilate tries four compromises to evade his responsibility. First one, verse 15 to 16, Luke chapter 23, 
He proposes to chastise Jesus and then to release him, verses 15 and 16. Uh, verse 16, I will therefore chastise him. I'll beat him. I'll beat him. I'll whip him. Then I'll let him go. But that only showed the weakness. If that man weren't guilty, then he ought not to beat him at all. See, Pilate showed his hand there. Pilate said, I'll chastise him and then let him go. They read his weakness right there. If he were innocent, Pilate said, I find no fault in him. If he's innocent, then he ought to let him go altogether. When they saw, you know, when, they, when he said, I'll chastise him, then they knew that Pilate was beginning to give in to him. And they were relentless now. So he tries a second compromise. He proposes to utilize a Passover custom. Let me tell this to you quickly. It's in Matthew 27. We won't turn there. You look up here. The custom at Passover season for the governor to release a criminal. How this started, um, New Testament scholars are not sure. But they are sure that it was a custom. At Passover season, apparently to curry the favor, and I think Pilate started it, apparently to curry the favor of the Jews, they would release a criminal at this time. And they'd release the criminal whom the Jews themselves selected to be released. So Pilate thought, my goodness, there's a good out for me. I'll find a man that's guilty of the worst crimes in the book. And I'll put him up against Jesus and let the Jews select. Do you want this worst criminal or do you want Jesus? So he got two men. One was Barabbas, 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 and the other was Jesus. Now, Pilate used extremely poor psychology. He misread the crowd. First of all, what he didn't realize was that although Barabbas was guilty of sedition, and guilty of murder in the eyes of the Jews, he was a hero. The man that died uh, the other day in Ireland may be a bum to a lot of the members of the world, but to the people who back him, he's a hero, isn't he? He's a hero. So Barabbas is a hero to the nationalistic-minded Jews, and Pilate simply misunderstood that. Secondly, Pilate did not realize how deep, how deep the hatred of Jesus by the Sanhedrin ran. He misunderstood that, he miscalculated. So he took a gamble here. He thought for sure that he would win. So he put up Barabbas and Jesus. And the crowd said, give us Barabbas, release Barabbas. Set Barabbas free. And that flabbergasted, that astounded Pilate. That shocked him. So he then said, well, what then shall I do with Jesus? And they cried out, very simply, crucify him. Put him to death. We've been telling them that all along. He's guilty. Put him to death. So, third proposal. Third proposal, third compromise that Pilate makes is found in John chapter 9. He proposes to turn Jesus over to the Jews and let them crucify him. 
He made that offer. I'll let him go and you take him and crucify him. Now that was only in jest because Pilate knew that, that they couldn't crucify him. They didn't have that right. He knew that. The Jews said, no, we can't do it, but this man must die. So Pilate once again tries to release him. And he beats him, brings him on out, and tries to, um, tries to curry the favor of the Jews by showing the sufferings of this man. And uh, he says, uh, look at this man now. I'm going to release him. And then the Sanhedrin played their trump card. The Sanhedrin played their trump card. And it stopped everything. And the, and the doom of Jesus was sealed with it. The Sanhedrin said, the crowd said, if you let this man go, who's guilty of sedition, you're not a friend of Caesar. Now that was a technical term, friend of Caesar, Caesar's friend. Man wanted to rise high in the government. He had to be, quotes, a friend of Caesar, quote. That was a technical term. Pilate wanted to rise. And he knew that if this, this report got back to Rome, that he had let go scot-free a man who was guilty of sedition, he would not only not rise, he'd probably be expel from his position as governor of Palestine. So when they said, listen now, if you let this man go, we'll make sure that the Roman emperor hears about it and the Roman emperor will say, why, Pilate is not my friend, not a friend of Caesar. And when they said that, that sealed the doom of Jesus at that time. So he tried a fourth compromise. That was the third one. He tried a fourth one. Like Lady Macbeth, he called for a basin of water, and he took his hands, and he washed his hands in that water, and he said, the blood of this man be on you. I wash my hands for this crime. Well, no man can evade his responsibility this way. That crime remains upon Pilate's conscience, and it remains on Pilate today. It never will. He can't wash his hands of that crime. And he releases him and sends him to Jesus, to the Jews. Look, at, look now at John chapter 19. We'll come to the conclusion shortly. John chapter 19. John chapter 19, verse 16. John 19, verse 16. Verse 15 says, They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate saith to him, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. Then delivered Pilate, then delivered he him, that is, then Pilate delivered Jesus, therefore unto them to be crucified. And they took Jesus and 
led him away. Next week, we're going to pick up at that point and study the crucifixion of Christ. So, Pilate delivers Jesus to the Jews and the soldiers to be crucified. The Roman soldiers mock and abuse him, and it's about 9 o'clock Friday morning. Now, I want to conclude, I hope you'll all be quiet now, I want to conclude by asking three questions. I'm only going to be able to answer one of them. First question is, I think I've all, got all three of them on that outline. All three of them are on the outline. The first question, what was the cause of the opposition? What was the cause? Why did they dislike Jesus? I'll give you three verses. John 11, 47 to 53. John 11, 47 to 53. The fear of losing political power. John 11, 47 to 53. The second one is Matthew 23. Virtually all of Matthew 23. He called them hypocrites. 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 Whited sepulchers. Matthew chapter 23. The third passage is John chapter 3, verses 19 to 21. All right, the second question is this. Second question is this. You have it down at the bottom of your sheet? Those three passages, once again, John 11, 47 to 53, Matthew 23, all of the chapters, and John 3, 19 to 21. Now the second question. Was the verdict of the Sanhedrin right or wrong. No doubt there were some illegal points in the, um, in the trial of Christ. You know, there's some books that major on the illegality, the illegality of, that, of those Jewish trials. No doubt there were some illegal points. There are not quite as many as uh, we once supposed, because what men have discovered is that most of these, most of these legal procedures come from the, about 100 A.D., and whether or not they were in existence at 30 A.D. is another question. But no doubt there were some illegal points in the trial. But that still doesn't settle the question. Whether the trial had some illegal points or not, it doesn't settle the heart of the issue. Was the verdict of the Sanhedrin right or wrong? What was the verdict of the Sanhedrin? He's guilty of what? Blasphemy. Now, was he guilty? Was he guilty? Well, let me put that in two or three propositions. The Jewish law was very clear in the book of Deuteronomy. Blasphemy was worthy of death. Man laid claim to divine prerogatives. He was to be stoned to death. The Jewish law is clear. Blasphemy is worthy of death. Step number two, Jesus claimed to be divine. Jesus laid claim to divine prerogative. Jesus claimed to be deity. Third step is that Jesus is therefore guilty of blasphemy and worthy of death unless, unless what? Unless he is what he claimed to be. Unless he is what he claimed to be, which leads me to step four, and I've used this from time to time when I've spoken with uh, college crowds and crowds where they're unbelievers. Step four, the only way to escape the verdict of the Sanhedrin is to affirm 
the deity of Christ. The only way to escape the verdict of the Sanhedrin is to affirm the deity of Christ. If Jesus is not God, he claimed to be God, if he's not what he claimed to be, then he's guilty of blasphemy and according to Old Testament law, worthy of death. The only way to escape that verdict, apart from the illegalities of the trial, the only way to escape that verdict is to affirm that Jesus Christ is God. Did he lay claim to be in God? Yes. Was that claim blasphemous? Well, if he weren't, then it was, and he's guilty of death, worthy of death. If he is God, then if that claim is true and he's God, then he's not guilty of blasphemy and he's not worthy of death. And the only way to escape the verdict of the Sanhedrin is to affirm the deity of Jesus. You know something? Very interesting thing. When the state of Israel was reconstituted in 1946, a Dutch jurist, a Dutch lawyer, wrote a 13-page, single-space type B-R-I-E-F, brief, and addressed it to the Knesset. I guess it was a Knesset. The court in Israel and said, since you are the legal descendant to the Sanhedrin, I am requesting that you open up once again the case of Jesus and try him once again. Well, do you know that's a hot potato? <laughs> they wrote back immediately. This is in Life magazine. They wrote back immediately and said, well, we're not sure that we're the legal descendant to the Sanhedrin. <laughs> now, that's a easy way to get out of it i'd have probably done the same thing see that's the easiest way to get out of it that's the way they did now let me answer one other question i want you all to listen carefully the question is this who is responsible for the death of christ is that what you've got down there who is responsible for the death of christ if we don't get this right we might fall into uh, uh exercising some pathos for judas or we could well fall into anti-Semitism. Who is responsible for the death of Jesus? In the last 20, 25 years, that question's been opened up once again. Bishop Pike, before his death, wrote rather extensively on it. The B'nai Bereith League, on several occasions, has addressed itself to this problem. Life magazine, a few years ago, wrote an extensive article on this problem. And, and the old uh, uh, National Council of Churches has addressed this problem. Who is responsible for the death of Jesus? Matter of fact, the Roman Catholic Church many years ago took out one word in one of their statements that go back a few hundred years ago in which they accused the Jews of the act of deicide. Now, you know what? Suicide is, don't you? Taking your own life. You know what fratricide is? Yeah, taking your brother. And matricide, taking the life of your mother. And what other side there is? Time aside, sleeping in church. 
see, <laughs> whatever that is. <clears throat> I know a lot of people that really are guilty of what I call tithe aside. You know what that is. But anyway, they, they, they said that the Jews were guilty of deicide, deosis God, guilty of the murder of God. Now we've raised up this whole problem once again. Who is responsible for the death of Jesus? Well, I say there are four causes, and with this I'll close. One or two of you have heard me on this before, but you weren't listening very well, so I'll repeat it. <laughs> Who is responsible for the death of Jesus? First, there are four causes. Human cause, demoniac cause, moral cause, and divine cause. Four causes. First one is the human cause. Acts 4, 23 to 30. Acts 4, 23 to 30. Acts 4, 23 to 30, Peter says, well, they, they're praying. That's part of a prayer. In that prayer, they said that both the Gentiles and the Jews, both Herod and Pilate, along with the people, which refers to the Jews, were gathered together to do whatsoever thy hand had ordained to be done. So he's guilty. That's the human cause. Both Gentiles, Herod, Pilate, the soldiers, they were guilty of the death of Jesus. Also, the Jews were guilty of the death of Jesus. They put Jesus to death. Now, I want you to listen carefully. When the New Testament uses the word Jew, in this case, the word Jew is often a term that's used of the Jewish leaders. And when it says that the Jews put him to death, the term there refers to the leadership, to the Sanhedrin. After all, who by inspiration charged the Jews with putting Jesus to death? Who by inspiration charged the Jews with putting Jesus to death? Anybody tell me? Who was it by inspiration in the New Testament? Jews did. What was Peter? What was he? Was he an Irishman? Was his name Simon O'Peter? <laughs> no, he was a Jew. What was John? He was a Jew. What was Matthew? He was a Jew. Who was it that accused the Jews of putting the Savior to The Jews themselves, see? Disciples. And when they use the word Jews, they, when that term is used, especially in the Gospel of John, as we see it in our study, he doesn't mean the great body of Jews. He's thinking primarily of the Jewish leaders. And you also want to keep in mind that what the first century Jews did doesn't mean necessarily that the 20th century would do. And if there's something a Christian ought not to drop into, it's anti-Semitism. Because the promise of God still stands. Those that bless thee, I will. And those that I will curse. Were the Jews guilty? Absolutely. So were the Gentiles. They're both guilty. They both share the blame. That's the human cause. Number two, what I call the demoniac cause. That's the devil. Genesis 3.15 and other places. Genesis 3.15. Thou, thou, that's stated, Genesis 3.15 is a statement that God made to the devil. He's talking to the devil there. He said, I'll put 
enmity in thee, devil, and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. Thou shalt bruise, crush his heel, and it, the seed of the woman, will crush your head. When will the seed of the woman crush the head of Jesus? Revelation 20. Cast him into the lake, of, when he cast the devil into the lake of fire. When did the devil crush the heel of Jesus? At the cross. A temporary injury. You can recover from the crushing of the heel, can't you? Unless your head is real hard. You see, when a truck runs over your head, you don't recover from that very well. At least you'll have a headache for a few days. See, that's a permanent injury. The demoniac cause, the devil. Number three, number three, the moral cause. First cause, the death of Jesus, the human cause. Second cause, the demoniac cause, the devil. Who's the third party responsible? What I call the moral cause, your sin, your sin. Who put Jesus on the cross? Your sin, your sin. Isaiah 53, verses 5 and 6. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement necessary for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we were healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned each one to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. There was an old Negro spiritual. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? I remember Dr. Chaper, the president of the seminary. I want you to listen now. Remember Dr. Chaper, the president of the seminary, which I attended, telling us this story more than once. He was preaching down in Florida, preaching to a large black congregation. And he said, they sang a song I had heard many, many times. He said they sang beautifully. That old Negro spiritual, were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there when they crucified my Lord. He said, as I sat on that platform and as they were singing that song, were you there when they crucified my Lord? All of a sudden it came to me for the first time in my life, yes, I was there. It was my sin that nailed him to the tree. It was my iniquity that he bore at the cross. Yes, I'm guilty of the death of Jesus. Don't blame it on the Jews. I am guilty of the death of Jesus. And my friend, had you been there, had you been there, don't think that you or I would have acted any different because that trait of sinfulness runs deep in all the heart, all the human heart. My sin made necessary as well. The last cause is what I call the divine cause. The divine cause. Isaiah 53, 6. Acts 2, 23. Isaiah 53, 6. The divine, D-I-B-I-N-E, divine cause. Divine cause. Isaiah 53, 6. Acts 2, 23. Acts 4. Acts 4 about verses 26 and 27. Pilate, Herod, the Gentiles, and all the people were gathered together to do whatsoever thy hand had before determined to be done. Pilate, Herod, 
the Jews, the soldiers, did exactly, are you listening? Did exactly what God determined way back yonder in eternity that they should do. But when they did it, they did it as free moral agents and they're guilty of it. You know, the, the great thing about the cross, and we're going to get into this next week, because this is a distinction that's supremely important and that very people make, very few people make. There's a distinction between the crucifixion and the atonement. The crucifixion is what men did to Jesus. 